What's up, everyone? World Series champs, L.A. Dodgers. Feels good as an L.A. guy to be able to say that out loud. The city's just on fire, and all we need are for the Kings to step up and the Chargers. Big plan today. Big show. Excited about it. A lot of football. Um, but first, State Farm. Today's episode of the Ryan Russillo Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by State Farm. Getting great car and home insurance from State Farm at a surprisingly great rate. That's like drafting a player that becomes an all-pro, the real deal. State Farm agents provide personalized service so you can customize your insurance to fit your needs like a GM putting together their very own roster. You need a team that supports you, and State Farm's got a great one. In addition to agency, award-winning mobile app helps manage coverage, pay bills, file claims, and more. With a great price and even greater service, State Farm goes from strength to strength. Choose insurance that always brings its A game. That's right, the A game. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is presented to you by Lululemon. The perfect pants do exist, and you can get them at Lululemon. The men's ABC pants are shockingly comfortable and breathable, and they come in tons of different styles and fabrics, all made to make you look and feel good. Whether you're in the office, at the gym, cheering in the stands, or just relaxing at home, these pants are in a league of their own. Buy a pair today at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by Netflix. A gentleman always opens the door for you, but the gentlemen are just as likely to break it down and stash their drugs inside. The Gentleman, based on Guy Ritchie's award-winning film, is a new Netflix series that follows a whole new cast of criminal lords and ladies slumming it in Britain's criminal underworld. Guns out and pinkies up. Don't miss The Gentleman, now playing only on Netflix. Also uh, here will be Kevin Clark from The Ringer. Talk a little trade deadline NFL stuff and almost halfway through the season. Sounds crazy to even say out loud. And my man, Willie Cologne, uh, former Steeler, former Jet uh, with Barstool, but also did a bunch of shows with me at ESPN. I love that freaking guy. And it's been too long since I've talked to him. So we're going to do that. We'll get a little story time out of him as well. Life advice at the back end. And we start with the World Series. Okay, so let's start with a positive. Um, I'm, uh, I, I really don't care who wins these games. So emotionally I'm, I'm pretty detached from it. Uh, I think you can trust me on that one. I wouldn't openly root against the Dodgers. The only thing that I was doing where I felt like with Mookie, I couldn't tell if I wanted Mookie to have an incredible postseason run and he hits the, not the clinching home run in game six, but to make it, it's such a different game late when you're pitching with a one run lead versus a two run lead, just defensive alignment, things you can do the way you attack the hitters. So his home run to make it 3-1, you know, you're like, okay. And you just, I mean, Tampa was just done at that point. But I couldn't tell if I was rooting for Mookie to be incredible because of all the stuff that's still this Red Sox story. Part of the Mookie thing is still all over the place. Like guys I trust, they're like, look, he didn't want to resign. They offered him money, they didn't want to resign. And other guys I trust are like, no, that's kind of not really what happened. And so I still am not 100% sure what happened. I just can't imagine that a team like the Red Sox would act like the Montreal Expos and, um, you know, for what they got back. You can say, oh, he's going to be a free agent, but I think he had to be tougher on that deal. So anyway, enough of the Mookie stuff. But what I was saying is that I couldn't tell if I was rooting for him because I wanted the Red Sox ownership to look bad or if I wanted him to not do as well because people that just a week ago realized that Mookie Betts is really good. And shout out to Magic Johnson for having Mookie Betts pass Mike Trout in his power rankings for baseball. That's the kind of reaction I want, and I would like to see him on first take soon. Um, The other positive is for Clayton Kershaw. Whenever you are one of the greats of your era, and Kershaw is certainly that um definitely in the regular season my arguments for Kershaw over the years have been in the very beginning when he had a bad ERA I'm like you know what that he's still actually been a little bit better than it shows and then it was indefensible I mean it was just awful um they didn't do anything in the postseason last year we know how 2018 ended um 
I mean, he's had, he's had some brutal moments when he's brought in uh, for relief last year. And you're like, man, I guess, I guess there's just something different about him, um, where it doesn't show up. And by the way, the, the emotion and the output, the production, all of this is going to matter a little bit later as we get to Tampa's big decision, but I'm just glad for Kershaw. I mean, I even felt that way about bonds. I, I felt like I wanted bonds to get a ring when he was just this dominant guy. And I don't know that anybody like bonds outside of San Francisco has a pretty low approval rating, but I don't care that much about that stuff in the moment. And far removed from it. I'm not in some vendetta to be or vendetta to go, oh, I'm so glad Bond's never got a ring. He's, you know, he's a bad guy. I want the greats um, to get a ring at some point in, in really all sports. I, I really do because I feel like we've done such a bad job on how we, we talk about some of the greats because a lot of it has to do with circumstance than it does specific players, although I do think there's specific players uh, that not in baseball, maybe quarterbacks in football and basketball players where I go, I'm just not sure that guy being the number one guy will ever win something. But then we get to Tampa's decision to take out Blake Snell. And for those that may have forgotten, Blake Snell pitched a gem for five and a third. He had nine Ks. He's striking out the side all over the place. Two hits allowed, 73 pitches. And on that 73rd pitch with one out in the sixth, Kevin Cash went to go get him, and Snell is losing his mind. Now, the numbers have told you that that's when you're supposed to pull Snell because during the regular season, opposing batters hit 140 against Snell on their first appearance, so first time through, right? That number goes up to 307 the second time through, and then 304 uh, the third plate appearance, okay? So there are numbers, and trust me, I've always been a big third time through guy coming up in the minor leagues and watching some of these pitchers that just completely fell apart once hitters figured them out. And some of those guys never got out of double A, right? And again, Snell getting pulled in a million different pitchers. This is not new. We've seen the game of baseball, especially in the playoffs, change dramatically right in front of our eyes in a very short amount of time, whether it's openers, a million pitching changes. Like if you've been watching baseball and it was great, it was great to watch postseason. The postseason stories that we've had the last seven or eight years are incredible stories. Like there's these little reminders where I go, man, high tension postseason baseball. Like it's about as good as anything out there. And unfortunately, we had these great things, and you know, it still doesn't play as well as maybe we would in the conversation. But some of the ratings were good for this and, and some weren't. But when you're watching Snell deal, and everybody on social media is screaming, hey, the computer's managing the game, analytics suck. And I'm not all anti-analytics. I just don't understand how you could be pro every single analytic. I mean, the people that are super into numbers, how many times have you looked up something, bought into a number, and then a few years later with more information or looking at information differently gone, hey, you know what? That number that we did before, I don't really like that anymore. You know, that's why I'm always like, hey, have an open mind about some of this stuff or try to imagine the arguments against you. And the argument against this is like, what the hell are you watching? What are you watching? Okay, yeah. So, I mean, look, based on the numbers I just gave you, should you have taken Snell out after you got into the lineup the first time? Well, of course not. But it's 73 pitches, and I understand Snell's not exactly some guy here like Nolan Ryan who's going to give you a complete game every time, and I know that those days are done. But what happens to feel, or is that what the numbers people love, is that it takes the emotion out of every single decision? You know, whenever I hear a coach in football say, hey, fourth down tells you to do this. Okay, but what does it say about your team? What does it say about your offensive linemen? What does it say about their defensive linemen? What does it say about game, time, and situation? And again, spare me win probability. When teams go for two and they're like, oh, well, it works 51%. Of th- does it work 51% of the time for your team? Do you have a quarterback that chokes? And again, if you don't believe in clutch, because this is the thing that drives me nuts about some of the basketball stuff. It's like, hey, if this guy shoots it from here, this is how efficient he is. This is how he does here. This is where we should do this. This is the lineup we should set up here. Here's the plus minus. Look at all these different metrics. Yeah, what about game six down 10? What does it say then? 
Because a coach who spent 30 years of his life in basketball, you think he has a read on who he can trust and who he can't? And numbers don't tell you any of that stuff. And to say none of it means anything is as foolish as buying into every single printout, right? I'm, I'm thinking, well, excuse me, let me rephrase that. Never buying into the emotion of the moment is as dumb as dismissing every number that's basically gotten all of us to look at sports in a smarter way. People should have been taking more threes. People should have been throwing more in football. In baseball, I guess it doesn't matter if you can't hit the other way anymore, <laughs> which is it's crazy to me. With two strikes, a guy who weighs 170 is swinging for the fences down a run with a guy in second. I don't get it, <laughs> but I guess that's what you're supposed to do. So to be all in to the point where it's game six, your team is up and Snell gives up a hit, his second hit of the game, you're like, oh, let's go pull him. It doesn't make any sense. I've watched some of these postseason games where it's warning track shot after warning. I think it was one of the Braves games where, again, the Dodgers were down 3-1 in that series. So their comeback in this run against a really well-built Tampa team, this is an incredible World Series win, right? Like there's, I, don't, I have no segment in me that goes, hey, let's find a way to downgrade this. I, I don't have it. I don't want to do that. But there were just warning track shots. And I'm going, so the numbers say that these guys are better in a distance game but are you watching the fact that everybody's teeing off at each other? And those pitchers weren't pulled in that moment. I saw another game where a guy had a low pitch count and he gave up two hits. And even the broadcasters are like, yep, must be time to go get him. And you're like, these, these guys are hitting pop-ups that fell for hits. Like, does that matter? Does that matter at all? And that's the part of this where you get back to what the manager is in baseball now. You may not want to hear it. And yes, you can go find an interview saying that this isn't right, but it's true. Because I've talked to enough people that have played that I worked with at ESPN is the manager is there only to execute the game plan of the people in the front office and front front offices are, are more programmed than others. But if you look, look real simple to this mystery, major league baseball managers don't make anything anymore. Yes, there are exceptions, but there's more than a handful of these guys not making a million dollars a year. Now you could say, Hey, a million. That's nuts. I've, I have friends that played baseball that became analysts that turned down managerial jobs because they're like, yeah, I'm actually, I'd be taking a pay cut and I'd have way more stress and I'm probably fired in a couple of years. Now people miss the game and they'll go back and do it. Then they know they can go back into the booth. But I, I'm telling you, like, this is to the point where we are removing any feel, any observation for a baseball lifer to go, you know what, Snell's dealing look at all these swing and misses. It's not just that it's two hits. The number of swing and misses where guys weren't even close on pitches. Hey, let's let's give our guy another chance here. Let's see if he can get through the sixth inning because we got to win this. And I'm not even doing this as a play the results guy because I hated it in the moment. I tweeted out that I hated it in the moment. So this isn't, hey, it didn't work. I didn't care if it worked. It felt like there was no feel. And back to some of the other stuff where we talk about you know, can you sense something as a manager? Can you, is, is going with your gut really wrong all of the time? I think numbers people would tell you yes. Numbers people also don't believe in clutch. Uh, we've seen numerous papers on it. We've read all of this stuff and they make really, really good arguments because a lot of times we think a guy is clutch, like Kobe Bryant, for example. I mean, his shooting percentage is atrocious on some of those moments, but he sticks his jaw out. He pulls his shirt to the side and everybody's like, man, that guy's just, he just gets it done. Another level, dude. And they're like, does he? Or does he just take the shot all the time? But if you don't believe in clutch, does that mean you don't believe in choke? Have you ever taught have you ever looked at a guy who has to take a free throw late? Some of the guys don't feel it. Some guys do. I mean, I know this sounds stupid because I hate doing softball guy. But have you ever stood over a putt that just felt wrong because it mattered? You know, and I'm talking to some stupid scramble you're in or something like that where you're like, eh, this doesn't feel like it did a few, few holes ago. 
to think that the professionals are all um, incapable of feeling like that just doesn't make any sense. And I think a guy like Snell in that moment, despite what the history tells you, to not give him at least a little bit more of a chance in the sixth inning to say, let's go relievers again. And I know what got them there. Okay. I don't want to look at this as if, hey, man, analytics, huge L last night, because that's the way it felt. But I mean, is there ever going to be a win for just observation again? This episode is brought to you by Netflix. A gentleman always opens the door for you, but the gentlemen are just as likely to break it down and stash their drugs inside. The Gentleman, based on Guy Ritchie's award-winning film, is a new Netflix series that follows a whole new cast of criminal lords and ladies slumming it in Britain's criminal underworld. Guns out and pinkies up. Don't miss The Gentleman, now playing only on Netflix. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Joining us now from the ringer, one of our favorite guys, Kevin Clark. Kevin, how are you? I'm good. I'm just checking out Rob Manfred YouTube videos. The guy's electric. Okay, I think there's a good defense of him. I know I, you're speechless. No, I saw it. I saw it. It was the, the earpiece thing. Yeah, yeah. Right? That was yeah. the defense? Yeah. Have you had that before where the earpiece is going haywire and you start inexplicably speaking like you're at half speed on a podcast? One of my least professional moments at ESPN or perhaps in, in history for me. Uh, you know, I wasn't getting I wasn't getting a ton of love early on in the SVP program. It was sort of like, who's this guy again? And then Scott was off a lot. So I'd be sitting in the Mike and Mike old ESPN two studio where they do NFL live. It's a huge, huge room. And I would have the solo hour. We'd be on ESPN two. So that's where I think some of the entry level entry point stuff that that Colin and I have talked about career wise over the years, um, his career and mine, where all of a sudden it's the SVP show. And I'm in this massive room by myself doing an hour solo. Mm-hmm. And it didn't look good. It felt enormous. And it, it just it just was, we'd have two hours in a studio, a radio studio. And then we'd have one hour in, in this massive room. You know the room I'm talking about, right? Remember mm-hmm. the old yeah. Mike and Mike deal, right? Remember it was like this huge, huge room with all the backdrop. Yeah. And we kept having this problem where the people that were doing the NFL programming kept forgetting that I was doing the radio show and they would okay. run audio tracks, but they would play it throughout the entire studio and they would do it all the time while I was on the air. And so you'd be like, you know, the thing about Ivers, uh, uh, and it'd be like, you know, it, it was just, it would be, you know, Mort going, you gotta yeah. make sure, you know, uh, it would, it would be these massive voiceovers, sound yeah. effects, tackling noises and all of this stuff. And it sucked. Because I was already, I already had people going like, who's this guy? And it says SVP show and he's just sitting there pontificating. (laughs) 
solo radio was tough enough and it was always infrequent. I would not be solo for like two months and then I'd be solo yeah. for a week and then I wouldn't be solo again. So I, I wasn't great at it early on. And on top of that, I was like, like, can we stop doing these NFL track airs while I'm doing the show live radio? Cause it sounds bad and it sucks for me. And yeah. TV's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, dude. And they did it again. And we went to commercial and I was like, for the love of God, you know, like God. And I just, I just was like, I was off the air. And then I went to sit back down, deep breath, got it out. And I turned to the staff. I didn't yell at anybody's staff. I just went like, Hey, sorry, I lost it. And then my producer at the time, and I really didn't love what she said. She's like, we were just more embarrassed for you than upset. Oh, and no. I was like, oh, thank you very much for producing me up so well and oh, having my back. No. She was like, yeah, it was more just embarrassing what you did than it was that we were upset because you weren't going at us. You just looked like foolish. I was like, oh, okay, thank you. They feel way better now. So there you go. That's my story. I would say, I don't know. I wasn't there. I can't make a judgment on that. I would say that I'm more embarrassed for Rob Manford than upset. <laughs> okay, but where were you with your... I, You know, this is Adam Silver's run is incredible. I know. But also, approval... Goodell, Goodell, Goodell's become the Jason Garrett of this scenario, where he, he didn't do anything particularly well, but his stock is rising because everyone around him is just failing. Yeah, but see, like Silver... When Silver took over and, and it was the Clippers controversy, and people were like, oh my gosh, you know, this this quickly on the job, he has to make this huge decision and go, actually, this is a super easy decision. And when he makes it, everybody's going to love him for doing it. Like Sterling's out. Nobody's taking the Sterling side of this thing, you know? Right. So it's, this isn't difficult. This is easy. Like, hey, if I get rid of this guy, no one likes what's going to happen. Everybody's going to praise you. <laughs> but I remember thinking, eventually it's going to turn. Like the commissioner position is like the principle of like, eventually your approval yeah. rating is in the teens. It just happens because that's the job. Silver's maintained a really high one. And Manfred this past year has, I think you're right. Is he lower than Goodell? I don't know. I know, I know commissionership. It's like president where everyone is like, Oh, this president was great. And then you look into it and it was like, at one point, he had a five percent approval rating, and like eleven CEOs were plotting to get him fired. Like, I mean, it's it's just there. You can't outlast the. I guess there's an inevitable dip in popularity for everybody. It's a, it's a tough job. Tough job. Yeah, it's it's tough to be liked. It's right? tough to be liked. It's an easy yeah. job if you're in if your entire shtick is going to be I'm just going to take bullets from the owners. Like you know exactly what your position is on everything. But I think that it's tough to be universally loved in that spot. Because yeah. ownership positions yeah. can be sometimes a little hairy. Yeah, right. I mean, all the owners are fighting with each other, and then it's your fault when it isn't working out, which never makes any sense. Like, the owners right. don't get nearly enough blame for when things kind of go wrong. And I guess that's worth $50 million a year, which seems an absurd price. Like, how the owners allowed Goodell to tie in his salary to, like, these TV bonus structure things... Like, can you imagine those guys after a few brewskis, just a couple of them down in Arizona going, we're paying this fucking guy how much? So I once asked an owner about that. Did and you really? About how much about how much the commissioner makes? Sure. Yeah. I love it. And and their point was it's kind of like a big money quarterback who maybe they're I don't know. I'm I'm not talking about Mahomes here, right? I'm talking about kind of the, the second tier of it where I don't know, could you have gotten, got him for less 
could you have gotten somebody else? Sure. But they're making so much money and things are going so well that they don't want to they don't want to pay to find out. Right? Like they don't want to they don't want to go and say we're going to get this guy for 20 million instead of 44 million. And then it turns out there was some weird supernatural thing that Goodell had where he had an, an a natural ability to make money, right? That was the owner's is like why why risk it? We're all making so much money. This guy wants 20 million dollars more. And there was only one year he made 44 by the way. And so yeah, that you're was right. that you're was right. his defense. My bad. Was ba- <laughs> it was his defense where it was basically just like, yeah, I mean, we probably could have negotiated it down in, in a in a free market, but you know, everyone's doing fine. Why pay to find out? And and it's funny because it's the exact opposite in with players. Most players. Yeah, you're right. You're NFL. right. Yes. And where where they will try everything they can to take away their leverage. But my thing would have been if I were an owner and be like, you realize every team in pro sports is doing better in their TV money, including baseball with the regional network stuff and every conference except for Larry Scott and the Pac-12, which I will get to soon on this podcast. Um, you know, and he makes more than everybody else in college football as a commissioner of a conference, and he's doing worse than everybody else. Um, so I don't know if the NFL owners are involved with that one too. There are I'm kidding. But it... <laughs> Whenever somebody goes, well, look at revenue increases. And you're like, what was it going to be like with me in charge? What was it going to be? Hey, do you, hello, TV programs. Would you like NFL on your TV? You would? Okay. Let me know how much you want to pay. Well, hey, I'm going to say no, and I would like more. Oh, thank you for offering more. And then you go back to the owners. Because like, he's a terrible, Goodell's a terrible public speaker. <laughs> I, I don't think it's fair when players get into trouble that it's always somehow Goodell's fault. We get madder at Goodell than we do the player, which is weird. Um, but Goodell's in a position where, whether it's the ownership stuff that he can't ever share because he's there to be the shield, and also mm-hmm. when you're in charge of punishing the players. Like, just from, um, and I know this happened in the CBA, but, like, it just makes more sense for him to not have to, like, there's a weird way he could hide how much power he has in punishing people, but instead he wanted to punish people because, remember, like, around 2007, 2008, players are getting in trouble all the time. And it was mm-hmm. this NFL, hey, all right, we're really going to hammer these guys now. So I don't know how we got off onto this tangent. It's likely my fault, but that's where I'm at. No, it's my, I brought up Manford. Yeah, I know. But here we are 10 minutes later. I feel like I feel like we have more to get to. I, I'm ready for it. Okay. Trade deadline, go. <laughs> uh, it's Carlos Dunlap putting real estate listings for his Cincinnati home and suggesting that he's desperate to sell it right now. Is that one of the best trade deadline bits you've seen? I like that it's for sale by owner and that you have to show them how much money you have. Furnished or unfurnished was the best part of that ad. A lot of people will tell you when you're trying to sell a furnished home, furnishings do not add a ton of value to the list price. I have pushed back on that with realtors a few times, but um, you know, a realtors will tell you, you know, don't, don't think that you're just going to get some crazy number extra. Like, Don't start adding up your receipts from Ikea going, hey, Again, my stuff isn't Ikea, but you know. You get you're putting a lot of faith into Carlos Dunlap's taste in that spot if you're buying furnished. I once asked, I, I've had one interaction with Carlos Dunlap ever, and it was after the Oklahoma-Florida National Championship game. And I was in college, and I, Carlos Dunlap was just there. And so I was asking him, he had gotten in Bradford's face and said something after a big hit, big hit. I said, what'd you say to Sam Bradford? And he said, I looked in his eyes and I said, my name's Carlos Dunlap and I'm from South Carolina. And I thought that was, that's like old medieval stuff, 
right? That's what you say in battle in like 1410, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, what do you say? Could you go to Carlos Dunlap and be like, okay, here's the deal. I've looked at the place. Can we keep the samurai swords? Yeah. This love seat's great. The bean bags aren't really my style. <laughs> what do we say? What do you say we take 50 grand off the list? <laughs> That's uh, what you should do. Should we try to do as like a ringer bit by Dunlap's place? You have to talk to somebody else. Yeah. So talk to. <laughs> Talk to the expenses people about this. Yeah, I think what's the slow news date budget? Uh, it's it is uh slightly under whatever. Car- I mean, it's Cincinnati. Let's say that it's Cincinnati. I would do this. I would say it's put cheaper. a pitch document. You know what I hear a lot when I'm out in LA? Be like, hey, you know what? Just type up a one sheet on yeah. that. Just write it down. Yeah, just write up. Yeah, hit us up with a pitch doc on that. I'd love to see it. Yeah, I'd love to see how that works. Um, just write down your ideas. I hear that. Just write. Just write that down. Just start sending it out to people. Okay. What does that mean? Where are you when player decides to go nuclear and says he wants out? Uh, do you? Because I think there are some people that always yeah. take the player's side. There's some people that always look at his like employer employee and the employee should always shut up. Um, that's definitely not <laughs> the case, at least with, I would say, the climate of things today. The, the employee yeah. is more empowered than ever before. And I think it can be good. And it also can be seen as like, okay, enough out of you. So where are you at? Well, so Carlos Dunlap was demoted to third string. I understand it, especially in, in NFL contracts where the player has almost no leverage once they're locked in and the team can cut you at any time. The the guaranteed money structure is is kind of wild. And I'm I'm, you know, even for a veteran like like Carlos Dunlap, there's there's just not a lot of control there. Um so I understand. I wouldn't necessarily do it, but I don't I don't besmirch any any veteran trying to get out of a bad situation for doing I mean and by the way they said they told him not to come to practice today. It's probably going to work out. He probably would have been traded without this this whole bit. But I don't... The way NFL contracts work, I cannot hold it against anybody for trying extreme measures. And it's not like... I mean, I, I don't want to necessarily bring this into it because obviously there's a lot more at play here. But like you look at Antonio Brown, who obviously essentially masterminded his way out of Pittsburgh by chucking a ball at Ben Roethlisberger. Then he gets into Oakland and he tries to fight Mike Mayock and all this stuff. Like that's an example of somebody who just completely lost perspective and you know just try to derail the franchise whatever um with someone like dunlap it's like i don't know this is almost it's almost a little bit funny what he's doing he's not he's not trying to wreck the franchise here no he just wants out and he and he'd like to you know if he can sell his place furnished that saves him a ton (laughs) on moving expenses and you get to do it all over again so it makes sense but that furnished trying to sell your place furnished is not as easy people people just like hey i have nice stuff i'll just tack on 50 grand like no let me hit you with a with a little theory here, maybe he just doesn't want to move out. Maybe he does. He doesn't even want to leave the Bengals. He just wants to sell his apartment furnished, and this whole thing is for that. This is a guerrilla advertisement for his place. That would be great. Like nothing. Yeah. Hey, I'm hot right now. I'm trending locally, yeah. not nationally, <laughs> but I'm trending locally. And I want to see. I want to see. I get this. Viral, real estate's my favorite. Ad. My favorite rumors ever have always been connected to real estate. And there's none better than Peyton Manning buying a place in West Hartford, which didn't happen when people were telling remember me when, he was uh, coming. Remember in. when Bill, Bill Cower and John Gruden were just home shopping in every college town for 10 years? That was a good one. Um, that was good. good. Every, every, although every Brady, time it was an open job. Look, Brady, those are tea leaves. He listed the place in, yeah. in uh, it's a Brookline, right? And mm-hmm. he, we were like, okay, what does that mean? Like, oh, he's just downsizing. Like, people that thought he was still staying, 
Because the whole time I'm like, does he really want to learn a new system? Does he really want to learn a new system? Yeah. And then it's like, okay, but every single sign is pointing to he leaving. And if he leaves, we'll be like, why did we think he was ever going to stay when you list the house? Unless he just was but, like, hey, square footage right now is the time to strike. Then he bought in Connecticut, by the way. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. You know, but he actually just moved in Tampa again. He was in Jeter's place and then he moved near somebody else I know down there. So it's big news. Helicopters going nonstop. So maybe they got to Jeter's place and they're like, this isn't real kid friendly. Right. I feel like they're this ch- interview. Childproof cabinets. Is this the worst 15 minutes we've ever done? This is an amazing 15 minutes. Okay. All right. All right. I'm just double checking. Can you give us some real news information yeah. stuff though? Like take yes. it wherever you need to go because I feel like I've delayed this too long. So Rich McKay said as soon as he took over the job in Atlanta that he's not going to trade trade veterans for picks. And I think that's the biggest question right now because I think everyone looks in Atlanta. I don't know what they're going to do because I think one of the lessons of this Dallas disaster is that they thought they were way closer than they actually were. And they decided to to run it back and hire a quote-unquote adult in the room and try to make a run at the Super Bowl, whatever. And it turns out they didn't have the roster talent and they probably should have done a little bit of a soft rebuild. And Atlanta, their their cap situation is such that they can't go out taking all these dead money hits. So I understand why they wouldn't do that. But Julio Jones is, is probably, there's probably no circumstance where he's available. Matt Ryan, same deal. And I think that that was the big X factor if a superstar was going to get traded at the deadline is one of these teams trying to, to reverse course in the middle of the season. I don't necessarily see that. Um, AJ Green, I don't even know what's going on with the situation right now. Um, you know, they, 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 the, the Mike Brown adores AJ Green. I don't know what the future looks like there or how valuable he'd be. Um, and so I think in Gakwe level, you know, obviously he goes from, from Minnesota to Baltimore. I think that's the, the more of the level you're going to see unless Cincinnati wants to do like a Geno Atkins type thing, which I, I wouldn't be shocked about just because again, there's some, some, some unpleasantness there. Uh, but he would be a really good player for a team to add. Do you think there's anything on the Pats, whether it would be like I, I did a big thing on Monday about it, and I, I hope it was processed correctly, which sometimes is challenging in that any conversation that starts with Belichick's not good at this is is stupid. Yeah. But the drafting has been bad. But when I think about them this year, like if they won the next two games and get the four and four, I don't know that I'd be blown away, but I think it's one of the worst rosters in the NFL. And more of that probably has to do with a combination of his drafting in the last eight years and the COVID opt-outs. But whether it's Gilmore who wants more money, a lot yeah. of people locally think that New England team kind of quit in that San Francisco game, and there's some issues there. You look at some of the snap count stuff. I don't know if there would be a market for Cam. I don't know if Thune, who's looking to get paid. I don't know if um, I could see them getting really excited about trading somebody for like two second rounders that he'll then likely, you know, miss on one of them pretty big. I swear to God, there's a report that Stefan Gilmore put his house on the market this morning. No way. Yeah, I swear to God, that is real. Should we so, look at Kyle? Can you look it up and forward that to us? See if the listing, see what Zillow's history is with that. So uh, it was a. I just saw it on Radio.com. It was a. It was a, a report today. Okay, so with the Patriots, I don't know where they go from here because everything is wrong right now. I mean, like for for Cam Newton, mechanics Twitter, quarterback mechanics Twitter can't even understand what's wrong with him right now he's not throwing to the right side of the field i don't know if you saw that yeah uh, well there's a hand problems. there's a video in the denver game is it yeah. the denver game where he hits his hand and he's looking at his yes. hand but yes I, i'll admit there is a segment out there that no matter what cam does he's always hurt right it's and a little like steph right, curry in the playoffs <laughs> there's a right side problem he's had going back a little bit and probably related to his foot injury 
is the prevailing theory. But guys can't get open. The defenses do not respect the passing game at all. You see that with how they 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 the looks they give, just no respect whatsoever. He can't hit chunk plays, all that stuff. Nobody can get open, as you said, uh, on Monday. I just think there's a ton of issues here. I don't know how it gets fixed. I think Gilmore would be, if if they want to do the soft rebuild route, that's a good way to get value. Um, if they don't think if they don't think he's necessary right now. I think with with the Patriots, you know, they are Last year, for sure, they were the oldest defense in the NFL because Bill Belichick likes eight, nine, ten million dollar guys who can do their yeah. job, so to speak, plug a hole, whatever. Those guys would, in theory, be valuable in trades. Now, a handful of those guys opted out, which obviously changed the entire tone of the season. Uh, but I think that there's I, I don't know how this gets better right now in New England. Uh, Cam Newton could play better. And I'm not I would not be surprised if they ended up an eight or nine win team. Uh, but this is not a playoff team. And I think that kind of no one plays a long game quite like Bill Belichick. So I would not be surprised if he tries to get some value here. So that means you listen Monday. I appreciate you listening. I also threw <laughs> out that other theory, though. And this is giving Bill way too much credit. But that if we have a COVID cap that instead of $210 million, which I think would be a safe estimation for next year, and it's yeah. at one seventy five, we're going to see some cuts. Um, and they're going to be restructuring. You know, it's not like all of a sudden the, the league's going to be flooded with 20 pro bowlers and free agency. But um, I highly doubt that Bill was like, okay, we're going to this. He's like, my models for COVID go a lot longer than everybody else. And I will look at all of because they are one of the four teams with the most cap space. And I think the other are the yeah. Jags and the Jets, which is basically every year. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I think Bill sees this as a different season. And I would also say, that again, I don't want to sit here and blame everything on COVID and for any team, for any team. I mean, we saw how the Titans rebounded from it, but the best strength the Patriots have in every situation is Bill Belichick, every situation and the game planning and all that stuff. And you don't get that in a season where there's practice interruptions and it just the the, the flow is different. And so I think that this team would not have been very good in uh, any normal season, just from the roster standpoint and from, from just the mistake standpoint. But I think that there are advantages they normally have that they're not getting you know i from that game on sunday i thought it was interesting chris sims had an amazing breakdown of this where he basically said that what kyle shanahan was doing is ignoring belichick's bluffs to get everybody else so belichick likes to show that they're playing the wrong heavy box all that stuff and then drop out of it and every other coach gets really scared and skittish and says we're not going to run on that and shanahan just ignored that and just kept running and blew the guys away and blew the guys off the ball and I really like that. And there's there's a meme going around right now or whatever in, in NFL, especially analytic circles, that Kyle Shanahan is to offense, what Bill Belichick is to defense. And right now, I think we saw the talent disparity in a season where I think, you know, San Francisco's had a lot of bad breaks, but I think that we saw San Francisco able to play bully ball against the Patriots, which makes me think this is just not a normal season for, for anybody in New England. San Francisco, I would say, has the worst luck of any team in the NFL when yeah. you go the first month. The first month when you look at their injury report, and I always try to stay on top of like active, inactive, because there's just things there's a lot of times we can look at a result and go, oh, what happened there? Because the quarterback and the receiver are healthy or their best yeah. defensive player is healthy. And you're like, dude, they're actually missing like all of their interior linemen. They're missing both their safeties. And it can go, by the way, that meme circle sounds like a cool circle to be in. All right. Last <laughs> thought here. I don't think I'm in that circle. I just know about the circle. I like to post stuff that's super old so people don't get that it's being old, but I don't know how to, I don't have to, I'm just not great with the apps. I have one. I might post it later today. And when you see it, you'll, you'll know because it's late and it doesn't make any sense. And it'll be for all of us here on the podcast, all of the people My listening, it'll be for you. 
My favorite meme that you've ever put up is when we were in Atlantic City together for that podcast and you went to the boardwalk and kept posting photos of the celebrity cafe <laughs> in Atlantic City, which was this rundown boardwalk spot from like 1974. And you just you had you had bits on bits on bits. I did. And that was also when we were walking out and I had a monologue planned and we were having dinner. It was you, me, and Robert uh yeah. Mays, for those wondering. And I was like, hey, I have this like 10 minute monologue I'm going to do and, you know, it'll be kind of fun. I'm excited about it and it'll be cool. And we walk into the Borgata Sportsbook in AC and I see the setup where half of it's just an open business having no idea what the hell's going on. And then the other half is people that want to see me. And then let's actually let's make it half open. I don't know what the pie chart is, but somewhere there's a five to six percent of people that were going to watch the show, but weren't into any of us. Right. And as soon as I walked in, I read the room. I give myself that. I go, hey, that whole monologue, we're not doing that. I go, I'm, this isn't happening. And then the guys were eating, watching the Jets game, going, what the hell? What's going on? This guy, this yeah. guy standing up and talking. And then that one guy kept yelling at us about the Packers. What about the Packers, dude? The Packers. Oh, yeah. And then the, the highlight of my career was the old woman with a cigarette going, and she, she put a rascal in reverse as I was talking. And it beeped, and then she just shot right back out to play cards. I mean, it's straight out of a fucking movie scene. And she just nailed her disinterest. <laughs> just down and, and out in Atlantic City. But you it was know also what? Week, it was week two of the NFL season. So it was, it was just like we, had, we were all fresh and excited. and Fresh and excited. I went to the boardwalk, and then the guy was, I was like, yeah, I'm going to walk around a little bit. He goes, don't walk in more than two blocks. I went, come on. Like, see my arms? be fine he was like don't don't walk he goes call me back directly if you need to i was like oh come on everybody relax here okay um let's do this in the next few minutes yeah fantasy front office coaching staff mm -hmm. i i'm i'm very delicate because there's a podcast that came out about a year and a half ago that invented drafting anything so i, I don't want to upset anyone um <laughs> If you could have any GM, head coach, OC, D coordinator, you yeah. can go first. And maybe we'll even throw in ownership. Okay. So I'll go with GM first. So GM to first. And there's yeah. a lot of candidates here because there's a lot of good, a lot of good team building jobs. I think Eric DaCosta is one of them, where, but I, I can't give him 100% full credit just because Ozzy Newsom was there pretty recently and is still in the building. Uh, Brett Veach obviously did an amazing job. Veach right, may get it just for the Holmes thing and the vision and all the stuff that you've written about it. Like I, yeah. I had a hard time not picking Veach. If I get, uh, if I could buy stock in anybody right now and who's been hired in the last year, probably Andrew Barry in Cleveland. I think that that's a that's a rocket ship at some point. I'm going to pick a guy who I know is responsible for the team, who doesn't make mistakes, who put together a nasty team this year. It's Kevin Colbert. Yeah, who I think I doesn't <laughs> get no, enough doesn't. respect for the job he does in Pittsburgh. And a lot of that is because I don't think he gives a ton of interviews. Um, I, I talked to him a couple months ago and he, you know, when I ask him and, I, and here's the difference with GMs, there are, I would say 15 GMs in the, in the NFL. And I love when they do this. I say, Hey, what was your thought process on subtracting so-and-so in the second round? And they'll give you like full, like I'm ready to be in a Michael Lewis book type explanation or, hey, we did a study on this and whatever. And that's what I love. Thank God for those GMs. But what I'd say is that Kevin Colbert is the exact opposite of that. He'd say, well, you know, like, even when I asked him, I've asked him now three times, explain why you hit on wide receivers so often. Now Chase Claypool and all that stuff, Deontay Johnson. 
And he's just like, well, you know, they play with a good quarterback and we look for certain things. We look for return. <laughs> so he doesn't ability. want to tell you. And it will, but I just don't, he's just so chill about it all. You know, like he's not pounding on his chest as whatever. And so I don't think he gets enough credit. If you look at the way he's put together that not only the offense, but the front seven is just awesome. And like TJ Watt and Bud Dupree and, and the line Cameron Hayward. Hayward. I mean, I, I mean even to it, you know, to it was great. Yes. His second, his second to last year in Notre Dame, he was unbelievable. And then he came back and then I was told he was hurt and they had like a weird group there that was talented, but didn't do well. Um, uh, he was my pick. Colbert is? Yeah, he's 20 years with the team. We Exactly like you said, there's no there's no misunderstanding. You know, sometimes we give guys too much credit and other guys get no credit because of titles and not really understanding who's doing what. Um, sometimes ownership is the biggest problem. I love that he started as a Blesto scout in 1984. Yeah. Back in the day when you'd get the Blesto list and you weren't supposed to, he'd be like, oh my God, I can't believe I have this. I get that in the <laughs> early 2000s. I thought it was a big deal. Um, and then when I started being like, I don't know if this is that big of a deal though. Because it was all the measurement stuff before anybody could get their hands right. on it. Colbert's my pick as well. So uh, I don't think that's wrong. Head coach. Ooh, right now, I'm going to go Kyle Shanahan. For all the reasons that I described a little earlier with, with the game plan and all that stuff. And the fact that he's been able to overcome bad luck. I think that he's just... His ability to create easy plays for his quarterback is... And obviously, Andy Reid is is right there. He's their 1A and 1B in this conversation. But right now, if I had to, to choose anybody going forward, it'd be Kyle Shanahan. Because, you know, listen, if, if there were things you could do in the NBA that automatically increase the player's three-point percentage when you do it on the field, whether that's... When you do it on the court, some motion thing, every NBA team would do it. And one of the things about Kyle Shanahan and Sean McVay and that, that style of offense is their motion stuff and the things they do to create easy yardage has not been easily replicated or even widely replicated. Like teams are not trying to do it nearly as much as they should. And I love the offense. Obviously there's something special there. I think that a test of, of a team is, is how they, how the coach responds when things aren't going right. And again, that was the, some of the worst injury luck. I couldn't believe when they were playing in the new Meadowlands stadium, those two weeks and every other play, they lost a guy for five weeks, every other play. And Shanahan's ability to overcome that. There are so many coaches, and I know this sounds fake, but there are so many coaches who would have just given up on the season. I mean, Mike McCarthy's given up on the season, for God's sake. I mean, this is... I He had so much earned credit from the Super Bowl year that he did not necessarily have to have an amazing season, and he did anyway. I love Kyle Shanahan. I'm going to stay along that um, with McVay because yeah. when they're when they're right on offense, it's so much fun to watch. And I don't think golf is anything crazy special mm -hmm. and i also think he's himself you know you can say he's doing a gruden impersonation but that was at such a young age that whatever version of himself that he is now this is who he is yeah and he's got a personality if you've ever met him i'm sure you have where you go okay i could see like despite the age guys are just like yeah it's cool sean it's yeah. coach mcveigh like there's never i think he has confidence without ego which is kind of hard to do where I think Shanahan, although I like Shanahan's personality, I could see other people being like, what's going on with this guy? Um, so I would go McVeigh. And this is also including that we can't use Bill. Does it mean we can't use Belichick? Why, why can't we? Well, then I go Bill because I go Bill. Okay. Especially with Colbert as the GM. Because then you're like, all right, this is good. Like, hey, that, that, now we about, got wide receivers. Yeah. We were like, hey, that thing with receivers, I'm really good at it. So we're not going to just take a guy. If 30 years ago, Kevin Colbert had started in the Patriots front office and was just like the Nick Casario of, of New England. 
they, they would be 15 and one this year. Wow. Okay. Let's go quicker here. Finish up OC. It seems irrelevant with the two guys we picked. Yeah, no. So that was my, obviously you can't pick an offensive coordinator, otherwise uh, head coach's offensive coordinator. Otherwise I would have, I think Arthur Smith, just because of the miracles he's worked in Tennessee with Ryan Tannehill, uh, play action stuff. Again, it's just really easy. And I would say, by the way, there's a narrative out there that Adam Gase destroyed Ryan Tannehill or whatever. Ryan Tannehill was with Joe Philbin before that, who, by the way, Joe Philbin, I looked into this the other day, is in Dallas. Unbelievably. Can't believe, can't believe they're, uh, it's a good question to ask about Dallas. Did they get rid of Dave Campo too soon? You don't see that theory so, out there a lot. But it's not It's not like Gase single-handedly sabotaged Tannehill's career. Tannehill was just an above-average passer that in Tennessee he just he just flourished. And so the play-action stuff, the creativity stuff, using... I, I'm getting a little wary of the situations we're using Derrick Henry in. Um, and I think Derrick Henry can be a very valuable back uh, week in and week out. I, but I think generally, most important thing is what you do with your quarterback, what you do with your receivers, and I'm in Arthur Smith. Okay, I'm going to go uh, Greg Roman. Just because he's adapted so yes. many different times, and I, I love that he's an OC that Thought says, that "Hey, too. this is exactly what we're going to do because this is what you're good at." Done and done. All right, my defensive coordinator, Todd Bowles. I always loved his personality with the Jets. It was the Jets. I know it went south, um, but this is two years in a row now where he has guys flying around, and they were put in impossible situations. So I don't think any of that stuff matters from last year. And I love what he's doing with Tampa. So I'm going Bowles. I'm going off the board here. Okay. Rams defensive coordinator Brandon Staley. Because you're giving me a look right now. So did not expect. I don't I yeah, it's, it's off the board. So I love the philosophy here. Love it. Um Seth Galina had an amazing piece this week about the fact that, you know, we talk about offenses having their collegiate revolution, and that's gonna happen at defense. And Brandon Staley's actually on the front line of it. And I thought it was it was just a fascinating breakdown. I, I recommend I'll probably tweet it out later today. But the point he made was essentially that NFL teams try way too hard to stop the run and they can stop the run easily without trying to stop the run. If that makes sense. Teams can't stop. Teams can't run that effectively on an NFL defense if you're not even if you're you're playing to stop the pass. So what Staley's doing is he's playing a lot of uh, two safety looks. Uh, he's just worried about defending the pass and yet the team can obviously still stop the run because they have Aaron Donald and a bunch of generational guys up front. And so I think that philosophy wise, uh, Staley's where it needs to be. You know, Warren Buffett has this, this famous thing. I think it's Warren Buffett. If it's not, I'll just say it's Warren Buffett. Jim, it could be Jimmy Mark, Buffett. Well, it, it's like those Mark Twain quotes where he just every, everything that was witty and said in the 1800s was just attributed to, to Mark Twain. Um, but Buffett basically said, when you're looking at a business, if it should, if it wouldn't be invented now, it's not a good business, right? Like newspapers, you would not invent a newspaper right now. It would go out of business very quickly. So why would you? Why do we still have newspapers, right? If you're investing in a business, and when I look at defense, there's so much old world stuff going on with defenses still because of the way NFL coaches, especially head coaches, view the sport and how stopping the run is all this important stuff and et cetera, et cetera. I don't. I think that you need to have a forward-looking defensive coordinator. And I think eventually Brandon Staley's that. I think we all kind of rolled our eyes when McVay made the move to hire Brandon Staley uh, and get rid of Wade Phillips, where I thought that was, you know, oh, he's remaking the staff in his own image or whatever. But I, I for, for me, when I look at these sort of breakdowns and the way they're playing, I really like the future of, of Brandon Staley. It's Kevin Clark, The Ringer. The Ringer NFL show that he hosts Nora. It's awesome. They did a big quarterback trade rumor stuff and Steelers as Super Bowl contenders. The Cardinals are their big win. Uh, and we have them on all the time. So we'll check in again soon. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, buddy. He's a Super Bowl champ. 
Uh, he's a guy I've done some shows with. I'm fired up. I should have done this sooner. It's Willie Colon, also with Barstool Sports as well. What's up, man? This is, uh, like I said, it's been too long off the top. This is awesome, man. I appreciate it. When I when I got the text from you last night, I had to do a double take. I was like, oh, he's coming from the mountains. He has arrived. Good, yeah, well, uh, let's have some fun with this. Let's start positive because your Steelers, yeah, your Steelers look, look for real, man. And you spent a bunch of years there. And I would ask you, like, what's the thing that you see with them that maybe just the rest of us watching games on Sunday don't see? What's so special about them to you? Well, I, I think, you know, listen, I think if you've always been a fan of the Steelers and you've always supported how they play their brand of football, I think they're just playing. I think they're just doing them. I don't think they're trying to be anything or live up to anything other than the Steelers brand. I think they're playing physical. I think Big Ben, um, a lot of people like to talk about the chip on his shoulder with him being uh, ridiculed for being overweight and being 38 years old. I don't really don't think he cares about that. I think mentally he's in a good, he's in a good place. And I think a lot of times, and I can talk from uh, my own experience immensely when you're in a good place, as far as the house, uh, the family life, the, the locker room, you as an individual, where you're at, not being injured, you put all that together and you feel like you're just playing your best brand of football and you're not thinking about it consciously. Um, that's, that's, that's a good place to be at. And I think that's what Ben's at. Um, when you have the young kid, Chase Claypool, he looks as dominant as he, I mean, the sky's the limit for that kid. So I think the Steelers are just in a good place. I think they're just playing. They're just doing them. Um, and then, you know, it's working for them. I mean, last week against the Tennessee Titans, a lot of people were anticipating a dogfight. And it wasn't that in the first half. But the second half, they kind of got away from their game plan. And then they was able to rally. And then they was able to squeak out of there. But the Steelers going forward, man, if they could just focus on just doing what they need to do, play physical, run the ball, uh, lean on Ben when they have to, but let that defense kind of lead the way, which has normally always been the steal away, uh, they're going to be fine, and we may see them in the Super Bowl. Tomlin took over in your second year. Um, yeah. So you had Cowers last year, and then Mike steps in. He's still there. And I'll I'll admit, I'm calling myself out here, there have been moments with him where I, I, I wasn't sure because the Steelers are this great organization, and I, I wasn't sure because I was like, is he, is he just have all of the cadence down? Does he have all the phrasing down? And you know, there were some bad losses in the playoffs there for a little while. We were like, hey, you keep losing to teams you shouldn't lose to. But then when you put the whole resume together, and I did this again recently, I go, you know, it's actually now not as bad as I thought it was. Right. So give me your favorite Tomlin thing to understand him um, from the inside. Because I, I'm wondering, like, what was your first impression of him? Because he's a young guy, and everybody seems to, like, like him. But, you know, it's still, you guys are pro athletes, and you guys will kind of reserve judgment until you figure it out. Right. You know, it was weird because my T was my, like you said, Bill Cow was my first coach. And when I got BC, when I got to BC, he was, had just won a Super Bowl. That was Jerome Bettis' last game. Um, and then a the year after that, we went eight and eight. And But I started actually, which is weird about this week, my first game uh, starting uh, my rookie was my rookie year against Baltimore. Um, and then the next game was against Cincinnati. We ended up finishing that year eight and eight. But prior to that, um, that kind of gap between Cowher and Tomlin, I was pretty much a bubble guy, meaning I was penciled as a right tackle, uh, but I had to shape and the frame as a guy as a guard or a center. And I think BC, for the most part, and even though my offensive line coach for my rookie year was Russ Grimm, um, they still was still trying to figure me out where I was going to really kind of, what, what did I look like? Um, when Mike Tomlin got in, he was like, listen, man, you know, I went to William & Mary, you went to Hofstra. I know everything about you. Uh, I'm going to give you a shot. I'm only going to give you one shot. 
<laughs> right. And it was just like that. It was just like, I'm going to give you one shot. You deserve it. You work your tail off. Um, and we'll see what happens. And it, it went down just like that. Um, I was competing with Max Starks at the time who had was already the starting right tackle and had won a Super Bowl, uh, Jerome's last game in Detroit against Seattle. And so he was, he was the guy who was kind of the darling of the office line because he was young. He was doing the chunky soup commercials. People knew him. He had a sandwich named after him. Like he was kind of like that young uh, breed of office alignment the Steelers were really kind of making way for. And Mike, Tom- Mike Tomlin didn't really bite into that narrative. He was like, I want dogs. I want guys who are just going to come in, compete, and get it done and fight and give me everything they got. And he gave me a shot, and I was able to kind of win the competition battle. But one thing I liked about Mike Tomlin going forward, man, he just knew how to deliver. He knew what to say at the most. He knew what to say, how to say it, and say it at the right time, and he never blinked. And I think he was also a coach who, by all accounts, when you looked at him, because he was a young coach when he got to the Steelers, really kind of gravitated to guys who were physical. And I know it's kind of cliche, well, Steelers are a physical outfit, but he really, he kind of was like, listen, for us to be who we want to be, we're going to have to be a physical outfit. And he necessarily didn't have to implement that because he had, he kind of adopted the, you know, the Super Bowl team. But it's, it's one thing to adopt it, and there's another thing to manage it, making, making sure that's consistent along the way. He was able to do that just by the way we practice, how he handled meetings, how he handled individuals. He made it, he made it known, like, not everybody's going to be treated the same, but everybody will be treated fairly. And I think a lot of people took to that. And I, we just always, I just always appreciated how he operated, how he ran the team, because he was about it, man. He was about it, and he made us realize, like, you are the show. And that comes with a standard and that comes with a responsibility and we're going to live up to it. He made sure we did. Is that why you fought all the time then? Because you had to prove yourself or was that just you and the Bronx inside of you? That was a little bit both, man. You know, I was going against, I was going against guys who I had watched on Saturday who played for Georgia, USC and all these other big schools and Hofstra struggled with even having 2000 people in the stands. You know what I mean? Everybody in the stands was pretty much related to everybody on the team. And so for me, I just had this thing inside me that I, one, I wasn't going home. And two, because I got understand, Ryan, like before I got drafted, man, I was bouncing. I, w- I was bouncing after three or four nightclubs. Seriously, I was bouncing in Bridgeview and Long Beach, Long Island. I was at Minnesota's. I was, at, I was over there in, in the Garden City. So I was, I was in the couple, I was already doing, I was having backyard scrape, uh, scraps with normal citizens of, uh, of, of New York. You know what I mean? I was already a part of that life. So it was in me to, it was nothing for me to put hands on folks. I didn't think about it as like, oh, I'm going to get locked up and get in trouble. If I had a problem with you, I just, I felt like, well, the only way I know how, the way I've been making my money, these little $200 I get from the end of the night was putting hands on folks. So I just adopted that mentality and took it to Pittsburgh with me. And they, and they liked it. But big part of it was because I was very insecure uh, about who I was as a ball player and about where I came from. When you step on the field, man, and I'm looking at Joey Porter to Heinz Field to Troy Polamalu or Ben Roethlisberger to Casey Hampton, on and on, these heavyweights, I'm like, what is Willie Colon doing here? I, you know, I was just bouncing, making $200, and I was kind of okay with it. You know what I mean? Like, I was, I was, I was decent. Now I'm, I'm, I'm a part of this Super Bowl-winning outfit. I'm this scrappy kid from the Bronx. I'm still wearing Tim's and a Yankee fitted. And by the way, I don't know if anybody, they hate the Yankees of Pittsburgh. They're, they're prefer, they prefer the Pirates. And here I am, I had this big, I had this big chain with a big dog head on it. 
you know, just New York. I'm, I'm looking like I'm straight out the Bronx. And they were confused. They was confused who the hell I was. I didn't even have dreads at the time. I had a, a even Steven. I had a little boy and I had, and I had a little part up the middle, like Stefan Marbury. So I was, uh, straight I'm, in the I'm, middle. Stefan. I had it. Yeah. Yes. I was still doing it. So I was still in my New York thing, man. And, um, and when I got there, I just felt like I needed to prove my worth every time I had an opportunity. And I had to let them know because of the defense I played uh, with, you got to understand that defense, they were all goons, man. They were all about it. They walked it. They talked it. The reason I was able to, you know, a lot of people's like, you know, a lot of people know me from my, my antics and my, my playing days. But if you do know me about my nightlife, um, I got a, I adopted a lot of that because of the Pittsburgh defense. You know, my rookie year, I didn't win a Super Bowl, but I was partying like I did win a Super Bowl. I was in the club with Joey Porter, Casey Hampton, these guys who were taking off their shirts, champagne everywhere, and just women galore. And I had done nothing. You know, I, I didn't even own a car. I didn't, I didn't get my license until I got to Pittsburgh. Bill Cower actually made me get a license because he caught me one time to what I was doing. Shout out to my homie, Trey Essex. Um, I was rent, he would rent me a car, and I would pay him for the rental. And I would drive around Pittsburgh. So one time on the south side, I got uh, I got pulled over or something. And then the officer was like, oh, where's your, you know, whose car is this? I was like, oh, it's my buddy's. He's like, why are you driving it? Oh, I'm just trying to, you know, just take it. I was saying something ridiculous. Like, I'm getting, you know, I'm taking it to get filled up. And he was just like, all right. Well, he was just confused about the whole situation. Well, it got word back to BC. He said, like, Willie, you don't have a license? And I was just like, uh, you know, I I, I, not really. I was like, I'm from New York. I mean, <laughs> not really. It's yes or no. I love. <laughs> by the way, what did the cop do? Did he know you played for the Steelers and he let you go? Is that what it sounds he kinda, like? He kind of, yeah. I, I had my buddy. I had my buddy in the car who had a license. He made me switch. He was just like, let your buddy drive and go home, Willie. Let, let's make sure this never happens again. And I was like, yeah, sure, totally fine. But anyway, I ended up getting back to BC. Um, <laughs> And BC was like, yo, where's your license? And I was just like, I'm, can you back up a minute? How does that meeting start? Does somebody in the staff be like, hey, Bill wants to talk to you and you have no idea what's happening? I would, or, we, I think it happened. We had broke the team meeting and I walked by his office and he was just like, hey, come here for a second. Let me talk to you. He said, you don't have a license? And I was just like, yeah, not really. He was just like, why are you driving? That He was like, you know, you can't be driving without a license. Like, what's going on here? And I remember saying to him, I was like, coach, I'm, I'm from the Bronx, New York. We don't really drive. Like we have trains and we have buses and we have cabs. That's how I've been getting around. And at the time, you know, coming to college, I was, you know, I was, had, I was courting a couple of females who had cars. So that's how I was also getting around as well. Um, <laughs> and, and so on top of that, man, you know, he was just like, you got to get a license and you need to get a license now. And so he forced me to get my first license. So I was totally fine. You know, this, the situation I had working out. Uh, but I grew up, I grew up, uh, I grew up in an organization who treated me like family and I was allowed to grow up. You also got to understand this too, Ryan. Half of, half of my guys in my unit were in, were in their late twenties to early thirties. I was the young guy in the locker room. So when I was talking about leaving Margarita Mamas on the South side or partying or doing whatever I was doing my, my first year, these guys didn't want to hear that conversation. What they wanted to hear was the game plan. And all they was talking about was their wives and going home to do homework after the practice. So there really was a, there was a disconnect. There was a maturity that, that needed to take place if he was going to be a part of that team. And we all had our fun and stuff, but they were grown, grown men who were living and playing football at a high level. And I had to adapt to that fast. So it forced me to grow up. It forced me to mature. And it forced me to put my priorities first. And that was playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers and winning. There's so many follow-ups in here. Because... <laughs> 
you know, Darren Woodson, who was terrific at ESPN and yeah. got to know a little bit, and he was always laughing. He's like, oh, you got Willie today. He goes, every time I turn on that film, we're like, there's Willie. There's Willie fighting. Be like, away from the play. Be like, back that up. Be like, look at him. Look at him over there. And were you, I I hesitate to ask a guy with, with you know, where you grew up and your size and your switch that you have, if you were ever scared, but were you, were you, was there ever a situation you were more scared bouncing than you were going up against a guy on an NFL field? Yeah, man. So one time, this is real talk. We were, I was in, I was in, uh, I was, it was a summer night. Cause what happened was uh, my head coach, uh, at Cardinal Hayes high school, my football team was the head of security at this nightclub that I worked out, uh, worked at was called Bridgeview. And so, you know, about the let out the club lets out everybody, you want the parking lot to clear so everybody can go home. So anyway, the parking lot, we was trying to push everybody to the cars and get everybody to go home. And me and my good, one of my best friends, like my brother, his name is Pitt. It was like, my head of security was like, Hey, you guys go around this corner and make sure everybody's getting to the cars and get them out of here. Don't, you don't want anybody standing around. Boom. No, no problem. We had our headsets on. We turned the corner and no, can we curse on here? No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No bullshit. You bro. We turned the corner and it's like two cars, headlights pointing at each other. And it's a five on five brawl. These little Italian kids and they're having at it. Like they're good. They're, I mean, it's a full out melee. So we were running. So we got all those security shirts on. We had to wear khakis at the time. So we're running. We get to the we get to the fight, and we're like, hey, hey, let's break this up. Da 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 da. You know, this can't happen. You go to your car. You go to your car. We're trying to police the whole thing, and it's just me and him against two groups who we have no idea about. Like we don't know these kids from Adam, and one of these kids hauled off and sucker punched my boy, just cracked him. Bow. And As you guys boy, were just trying to break it up and get off the. And we're trying to break it up. We want the kids to just get home and, and, and enough. We didn't want the right. cops to kind of make this a situation. So one of these guys end up hauling off and, cr- and smacking my boy. My homeboy is a legit fighter. Like, he, not like MMA, but he's been known for putting people to sleep. So he, he got out of control <laughs> fast. He throws his kid against the fence. I go to grab the kid, another kid. This dude absolutely whips out like a switchblade. I haven't seen a switchblade in a minute. You know, kind of like the old school, like the whap, whap, like the Yeah, old, like, what is it, the Jets here? I mean, it's, it, that's, this is it amazing. It seemed like yeah. something like that. Bronx so tail. So the kid pulled out a knife, and I'm looking at him like, what are you going to do with that? And he gets to try to rush me. Anyway, we get in like a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a tussle, if you will. We we pulling and pushing on each other. I, we get to throwing him off. So I look at So I got like two dudes on. We're just scrapping. We're just an old-fashioned scrap. And I look over, and my boy is absolutely trying to punk this dude's ribs out of his body. He like had him on all fours, and he's just trying to kick the life out of him. And so this thing is going on for like five minutes. I can hear in my headset, Willie and Pitt, what's going on. And then so I end up taking my earpiece out. And throwing it on the floor because I'm in a fight at this point. Like I'm, I'm in full rage. I'm in full battle mode. Needless to say, that goes on for like five minutes. The cops end up coming around the corner, and they start flashing their lights. And they, you know, they 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 show up. They're like, "Hey, everybody, on the floor!" All this other stuff. So they see we have the security shirt, uh, shirts on. So they get us up, and I grab my boy. I was like, "Man, let's just go back." We grab our walkie talkies, and as we're walking down the block, man. I can remember one of the cops, you know, asked for identification. And one of the kids out there got mouthy with him. And, bro, I don't know if you've ever seen this. You've probably seen it on cop shows. But you know that baton right here? You know, yeah, that, yeah. That, that kind of jack? Yeah, yeah. This cop, as I turned, I kind of Riot turned stick. around, whatever they call it. Well, I turned around, and this, this cop hit this kid in the back of the knee so damn hard. If the kid has an ACL right now, I'll be surprised. <laughs> he, with the whooping on these kids, 
and got their ass straight. And I just remember just walking down the block. And, I, and then the reason I, I, I kind of felt scared because it was just me and my boy against literally 10, right? Like the two, two groups. could They turned on you guys. On right. They could have just uh, went full attack mode on us. But it was just us and a couple kids, man. And I thought I was going to get stabbed. And I realized the walkie-talkie that I had, you know, that I just broke for throwing it on the floor, I, now it's coming out of my pocket. You know what I mean? So it was just a whole situation. But those little things that happened. But that's what I was accustomed to. That, that was just my lifestyle before Pittsburgh. So it was, so when people talk about me fighting and everything, that was just like, it was just such a, a second nature to, uh, to just go. Do you have an NFL fight that you love or one you don't like or a guy that you still can't stand where the, they were probably be, well, I'm not going to say their words, and guys get older and they mellow out a little bit, or maybe there's a guy that hates you still. Oh, I'm probably, there are probably some dudes that probably definitely hate me, man. I think I, um, you know, my whole thing, like, it, it's it's frowned upon fighting in, in, in the game itself, right? Because obviously you get penalties and all that other stuff. But for me, it was just, it was me kind of holding the line. Because I think a lot of times when you have, listen, Ben Roethlisberger is worth $100 million, right? Valley is as tough and as big as he is, he's still the most valuable piece on that Pittsburgh Steelers team. And he was one of the most valuable pieces for me when I was on that team. So I had to make sure that you can play the game, you can get after him, but you wasn't going to be giving no cheap shots. You wasn't going to be doing anything to try to take him out the game. And he can't do it, right, because he's got to protect himself and all that stuff. So it was guys, it was kind of the code within our office line room. Like, one, nobody touches Ben, and you damn sure ain't going to be dirty about it. And so that's when the kind of the, the, the rough, you know, the tussling became um, a thing, especially when we play a team like Baltimore, right? Because those games against Baltimore, man, Valet, what made it special with the guys in the jerseys and the names on the back of them. But really, bro, it was, it was, it was the mindset, if you didn't take your shot, somebody was going to take it. You know what I mean? Like if you had a knockout shot, bro, you had to take it because somebody, if somebody saw an opportunity to drop you, they were going to do it. And it was just, it just was, that was just the nature of the rivalry in the game. Those games, man, I mean, it's, it, it wasn't that long ago, but it feels like forever ago. It because does. It's just the way the game it is does. played. Like, Ryan Clark keeps retweeting some of these hits. Uh-huh. He retweeted that hit in McGahee, and it was funny because somebody was like, does anybody remember this hit? And Clark was like, the only reason I remember is that there's film of it. And I mean, <laughs> right. he, he knocked himself I mean, out. Clark is a little guy, and he would absolutely but lay Ryan. dudes out. You know, like, I'm just saying, like, you guys were unbelievable in those games. You know what's wild about it? Like, so, Haloti Nada was probably, I, I say this, he's probably the hardest person I ever had to block, pound for pound, right? Because, for me, we came out roughly around the same time. He was just as big as I was. He was just as physical as I was. He was just as nasty. Just as He had everything. So Fair to say, even a better body than yours, Willie. You know what? I don't know who said that, but you know what? We won't we won't talk about the critics. So I would say this, man. But when you're going against somebody who has who pound for pound can match you, yeah. What do you do? Seriously, what do you do? The only thing is this a fight. And so a lot of our films, me and him just pulling and tugging and and him trying to knock my head off and me trying to get after him because we matched each other. Like it was just is this what it was what it was. But I tell a lot of people, man. What's interesting about our rivalry, and what I try to tell a lot of people is. When you talk about, you hear a lot of coaches say, well, set the tone. There's a tone setter. It's usually, you know, it's easy. You could easily point it out, James Harrison. You could easily point it out, Troy Polamalu. You could easily point it out, Lamar Willie or anybody else, Ryan Clark. The guy that was set the shit off was Heinz Ward. Heinz Ward was, bro, I've never seen somebody who just absolutely irritated the hell out of one particular team so much. They hated Heinz ass so much that it put, it was like his first knockout block or the first thing he did 
it was on. It, it was just, it just, it was just like, it was just like uh, gasoline to a fire. And I remember one time it was in Baltimore, man. I think Hines is running a play. I think Hines is running a route rather, and it, it, it breaks left. And Hines is actually running down the field, and he comes back down here. And I and I remember I'm coming around, and I can see Bart Scott, and all I've seen, I see Bart. I think it's either Bart or uh, Terrell. But they hit the floor like a like a grenade was going off, and then you see Hines go right over their head, and Bart popped. I think it was Bart popped up like you dirty motherfucker. I don't. I, I'm gonna get you. I swear I'm gonna get you. And Hines just comes up with this big old grin, like oh, oh, oh. like it was it was crazy because you really had to have your head on a swivel. And I can remember in the game, everybody talked. You had to have these kind of senses. You had to have these spidey senses about you because if you were kind of standing around at the end of a play, you gonna get clipped. So if you wasn't in the action, you been, you had to be looking around because guys were going to take their shots. And that was just kind of like that mentality. And Hines always started it off, and we loved it for him. It, it, you could easily said, well, badass James Harrison. No. The tone setter, the fire starter was always Hines Ward. That's one of those things, too, where, I mean, it, there's, you know, because sometimes this culture, not sometimes, there's a lot of times where I'll hear, oh, it's a culture, you know, this is our identity. And so much of it in sports is bullshit. It's like, you know, right. who doesn't like, hey, your team sucks. That's your identity. You know, <laughs> like when when a team's four and 12 going, we need to establish who we are. We're like, we already know who you are. Like, right. okay, what are you going to do? Right. What are you going to do? Put up fucking posters, put up more posters and shit. Like, it's stupid. <laughs> right. But then sometimes it's real. And when it was you guys and the Ravens, it was so real and it's, it must've been weird. Cause you know, there was probably like one dude that's like, Oh man, like three days to go four, two days to go. Like, that I don't want to go out there. You were scared. Me. Come Brian, on, let, bro. Let me, I'm gonna keep All right, well, you're telling me, I mean, it just seems impossible, but like, I wasn't tell. scared. I wasn't scared, but your manhood was going to be challenged. Yeah. And it, I don't, I don't know how you was raised, but you never want to get dumped in front of your daddy on your mama. Right. Like you don't mind getting beat up in front of your friends but you don't want to get beat up in front of your parents, right? Because then that makes them feel like they failed. My whole family watched this game, and it was a bloodlust game. And it was one of those games, like I said, I've been talking about, you, if you didn't take your shot, somebody was going to take it. Yeah. And leading up to that week, man, I would have anxiety. I would, it was hard for me to sleep leading up to game day because I knew it wasn't no, it wasn't no pussyfooting around. This wasn't like, you know, this team – there wasn't, there wasn't anything we were going to do that they didn't know and vice versa. Like we just knew each other. We were intertwined, we were intertwined with each other. And so going into that game, man, you just knew you had to bring your AA game and plus rally up your daddy's DNA to fight these some bitches because it was going to be that type of intensity. It was going to be that type of physicality. And it were ups and downs. You know, they'll get ahead. We'll get ahead. Defense do this. We'll do that. But the guy you're going against really had hell. He had hell in his eyes. He had evil intent. So you had to muster up somewhat another level of just saying, listen, man, I ain't getting got today. and I'm not going to be the guy. I'm not getting got. If it takes for us to put our foot in the middle of the ring and bang it out, that's the type of day we're going to have. But that was expected. And so you also got to understand the year we won the Super Bowl, we played them three times. We played them three times to get to Tampa to beat the Cardinals. So it was really on and popping. And we were both kind of neck and neck throughout the whole season, which made it, 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 it just it, it further intensified that kind of that that level of anxiety. Like, man, you know, I got to go today. This is what it is. Ben, <laughs> I think having a guy like Ben was important too, because whatever he was, and there's there's a lot of stuff out there. He was tough. He's tough as yeah. hell. He's still tough as hell. But I think I know you a little bit. 
I can't imagine you got along with him, but I imagine that never got in the way of, you know, the job. Like I, you know, there, there's guys that you're dudes, but I, I can imagine, especially back then early on that he wasn't exactly like a guy you were hanging out with. He wasn't man. In fact, I'll tell you another quick story. My rookie year, uh, at the time, I got drafted in the fourth round. There was uh, Aaron Rodgers Center. His name was Marvin Phillips. He was uh, Aaron Rodgers Center at Cal. We were both two guys, undersized guys for the most part, uh, particularly for our position, but we were both scrappy, loved the game. Uh, they drafted us. Ben uh, Ben had just won a Super Bowl. The team was on fire. Confidence is high. He'd only he been got, in the league a year, right? Not even. I had got drafted and then yeah, right. Where, Sat for a little bit, right? Yeah. So yeah, I'm, but I'm talking. This I'm talking about is like OTA spring training. This is what I'm talking about right now. Right. Um. So I, I get drafted, landed in Pittsburgh. Marv, me and Marva together, rookies. You know, when you get drafted with your guys, you usually hang out together. Uh. So th- we get on the field, and it's quarterback versus uh, center exchange. Not versus, but it's quarterback center exchange, and so. A lot of quarterbacks are taking snaps, getting ready for the day. Ben gets out there. He takes a snap underneath Marvin Phillips. And I think Marv probably pretty much shot it short and kind of jammed big Ben's finger. And Ben's just like, God damn it, this is my finger. He, he kind of has this whole display. And so Russ Grimm, our offensive line coach at the time, is standing there. And he's, first of all, he's a Super Bowl winning quarterback. He's yeah, Russ saying, Grimm. Right. Like, what, what are you doing, kid? Like, you know, yeah. keep your hands off the Cadillac type situation. So... And I can remember Marv that day feeling like bad, feeling low, feeling like, man, you know, I just messed up this guy's finger. I'm new to the job. I don't want to be considered a liability. He has all these things going through his head. And I felt bad. And I felt like Ben shouldn't have done that. He should have just kind of ate it only off the principle that as a rookie, and he's probably nervous taking the snaps with Ben Roethlisberger, right? That's what I just felt like should have happened. Anyway, so fast forward, um, Ben used to, like, we would have kind of uh, – we would kind of have like, you know, walkthrough. And during walkthrough, the offense would switch over. I mean, the starting O will you know, kind of do put on like a shell or be like the show for the, the second string. And Ben used to mess with me and, and do all this other stuff. So I was always kind of a little bit annoyed with him. Didn't really and then I was new to him. I didn't know him. What I was just I was just perturbed by him. And then there would be times where he would just kind of just be this annoying to me. And I was just like, man, this guy, I don't, I'm not feeling him. Just just whatever. And then as our time, as time grew, man, I realized we we were kind of the same. All we wanted to all we wanted to do was win. And sometimes I think I kind of enthusiasm, not even enthusiasm. Sometimes we just realize that you know when you want to win so bad, man, you don't really care about other people's feelings. You just you just you do want to do how you want to do and how you want to operate. And to be honest, me and Ben are extremely close. We've, we've, we've grown to be extremely close. And I think what I've learned more about him, man, when you close the door and you sit down with him one-on-one when nobody's around, he's the best human being in the world. The best. Absolutely a bros, a guy's guy, a bro's bro. He's the type of guy, type of guy you do want to sit down and have a beer with and talk. Um, and I think a lot of times, I think because of what he's went through in Pittsburgh and whether his fault or not, I'm not here to judge. I think he has shelled up, but I don't think that's like him no more. I think he's open. I think it took him a while to get there. Um, but we talk every now and then. I, I text him after the game. I was like, man, you had me in a pretzel all last afternoon because of this damn tight, Titan game. You know, congratulations on it. He's like, yeah, man, it's, it was a good one. But I, I love him now, man, because I've seen his growth. I've seen his maturation period. I've seen him go from the low to the highs. 
And I've seen him become a better leader. I've seen him acknowledge his own faults. I've just seen him grow as a person. So I, I love him, man. But he's he's one of those guys like you can't help but go to go to battle with because if you've played with him and you've seen him play in action, you know he'll sell his soul to the devil to win one game on Sunday. You know, he's just that competitive. He's probably honestly the most competitive person I've ever been around or played with. And I just, you know, not I'm not trying to say he'll blow the guy, but he's a he's legit, man. I love him. I call him my brother and, and I just I respect who he is right now at the age of 38. So when you look at the Steelers, the last thought here as, you know, we off coming off this, like I liked it better than Tennessee. I look at them being up 27, seven as, as more of an indicator of where they're at. Uh, Tennessee fans would argue. And I did all of this on Monday's pod. Like, Oh no, we, we came back, we got into this. And then it's like, wait a minute, is Kansas city? The only thing in their way is Pittsburgh better than Kansas city with Mahomes. Sure. I'm, I'm not going to pick anybody against that team probably for like the next 10 years. Cause that's when I think of Mahomes. And this, this I felt like left Baltimore out of the conversation. So how do you handicap the top of the AFC right now? Now, you know, Buffalo fans are, are asking about themselves too, but the last couple of weeks have been great. Uh, I still like Kansas City, but I, I felt like Baltimore, Baltimore, and I used this analogy before, we expect they're going to win. The Lamar thing isn't as exciting because it's not new, even though it's just as exciting. I mean, he's still right. doing stuff every week where I'm like, I can't believe that he, he got that playoff. I can't believe he did this. He's impossible to tackle. Um, but how do you see those top teams in the AFC? Do you think there's a lot of separation? Do you think anyone can beat Kansas City? Uh, the thing about Kansas City, man, you just never – you feel like they just keep getting better, which is crazy because they win at such a dominant fashion. You just feel like they just keep getting better and they keep doing um, the necessary things to win. I, I Listen, I think Pittsburgh obviously is number one to me um, in, the, in, the, in kind in of the, the conference? hierarchy. Huh? You think they're the number one AFC team? I do. I do. Okay. I, I think the way – I think the way they came out against Tennessee and the standard in which they play in. And I also realized that they're, I think a lot of times you have to find a quarterback that's going to find a way. And that's what Ben always been able to do. He can find a way. And I think he's that guy right along with Patrick Mahomes and Russell Wilson, those guys, they just find a way to win and they can put the cape on. Now, obviously been through three picks that game and struggled a little bit, but coming up was just botched picks. I think one of them was just him trying to force the ball in. The last throw, I don't even think was that bad. I yeah. It was, it was the just right play. Just, and then it gets yes. tipped, but. So I, for me, it's obviously Steelers, Chiefs. Um, I don't know how you can say it, man. Like, but I, I, you gotta, you gotta respect both. You gotta respect Buffalo. You kind of gotta, you know what I mean? Like, even though they haven't, I just played. wish their defense was better. Because last year you were like, "Hey, that defense is awesome," and now you're like, I, "What happened?" I was all over their defense. I, I, I thought their defense was extremely underrated. And now you kind of like, well, was it? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> last week, you like you don't know what to say about it. So yeah. Um, in Baltimore, uh, you got to respect. I think Lamar Jackson. I'm the, what scares me about Lamar Jackson is I feel like people are starting to see his ceiling. You know what I mean? And I'm yeah. just like that's that's what makes me nervous. I don't feel like he's evolved. You know, he's capable of some dynamic things. He can be. He can. He can get it done. But I feel like I'm starting to see his ceiling, and I, I think it's too early to see that. And, I, and I'm talking reference uh, more about his arm and his ability to win games with his arm alone. You know he can run the ball. You know he can make magic plays. But if he had to sit in the pocket and, and win a game with his arm, I don't think he could do it right now. Hopefully one day he can. Um, and my, I guess my fifth team, man, I don't, I don't really – I don't know who my fifth team would be. You don't who have you? to have one. That's fine. You don't oh, have to okay. have one. I don't really – don't see anybody right now. No, that's cool. That's how <laughs> it feels. Hey, man, let's do this again soon. I, I mean, I didn't so know. You, I didn't bro, want to... I'm here for you, man. You know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a fan, man. I'm a fan of you and uh, – I appreciate the opportunity you allowed me to have when I was on your show. 
well, come on, man. I mean, within within minutes, uh, for those that don't know Willie, you know, you, you kind of looking around, what's this guy's deal? Seems like a dick. <laughs> second show willie comes in with like gift bags he's handing out sunglasses to people he's asking to play right. salsa music during the breaks and i was like all right we had jersey and the thing day, that sucked, man. You, did you yeah, put that we, did you put that picture in your man cave that's a man cave photo yeah. <laughs> and uh once once i got to like day two with willie man i was like that's that's my guy and we i still have in. i still have your banana boat shirt Oh, that's right. Yeah, with the guys from Barstool. That's yeah, I was funny. throwing, I was throwing out a bunch of stuff, man, and it popped out. It was just like, oh, damn. you were throwing stuff out. Uh-oh. Yeah, I, yeah, I think like every man, like for some reason, I can, I can throw, I can throw anything away, but t-shirts, I struggle with. I struggle. Oh, with you them. can't throw that one away. That's limited edition. At it's the still very a, least, I didn't. Yeah. I know it's one of a kind. I can't imagine it fits you. Hey, let's shout out your spot, by the way, too, because you're doing something I always wanted to do when I was a bartender. You got you, were, you went from bouncer to Super Bowl champ yeah. to uh, talk show host and Barstool Breakfast to now owner. Yeah, so I have a, a place in the Bronx. It's a beer garden, actually. It's called Bricks and Hops. It's on 65 Bruckner Boulevard um, in my old neighborhood in, in, in the South Bronx in Mount Haven. We have a back patio, food. We have over 40 domestic beers, man. And you walk in there, you see my jerseys. You see a lot of people who are proud to eat at willies if you will that's awesome man doing it doing it back home next yes, time we'll sir. talk jets so i you know well, i thought we were going to talk jets but the steelers stuff was too good and once and we start I'm talking have, ravens i'll make sure i have a bottle of tequila for that one <laughs> all right sounds good that's at willie cologne six six and uh, we'll do that again soon thanks bud thanks brother be good baby before we get to live advice um we're crushing it with the same game parlays we've picked <laughs> them all right so far this season we have been doing this isn't like we're doing uh seven of these but um since kyle won last week we're gonna we're gonna ride this hot hand although i'm a little worried based on his research um that we'll maybe we'll explain a little bit later in a further <laughs> episode so here we go uh new favorite bet concept this season i've been playing the same game parlays on fanduel sportsbook uh very simple all you have to do is combine multiple bets from one game into a single parlay this way the payouts are even bigger when you win simple concept so three bets baked into one bigger payouts. All right. And FanDuel will refund the first same game parlay you lose on any NFL game each week up to $10. That means you can bet a different parlay risk-free. I'm going to repeat that again very slowly. If you're doing nothing and you want to sign up, do this. You can put 10 bucks down on a same game parlay. And if you lose, you don't lose the 10 bucks. You can do it free every single week up to $10. All right. So what's, what's the lose there? All right. So, Kyle has one, extensive research, Thursday Night Football, Falcons at Panthers. He's going Atlanta plus two and a half, under the 49 points total for the game, and Atlanta first half money line plus 140. That's going to pay out plus 434. All right. So with your first NFL single game parlay of the week, you'll get up to 10 bucks back if you don't win. So now there is one catch, FanDuel is the only sportsbook app that has these same-game parlays. So if you don't already have a FanDuel account, just use the promo code Ryan, R-Y-E-N, R-Y-E-N. That's FanDuel.com. Click on the Sportsbook tab, and you will find the same-game parlay right there, right in front of you. Promo code Ryan. Must be 21 and present New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, West Virginia, Indiana, Colorado, Iowa, Tennessee. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in seven days. Max refund, $10. Terms apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF. In Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Indiana, 1-800-GAMBLER. New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Redline, 1-800-889-9789. Tennessee, or visit 
www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice rr at gmail.com. Again, that's lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. Okay, we're going to do one here because we went long with Willie Cologne and it was worth it. So, okay, here we go. I'm 25 years old, born and raised in Indy. I uh, went to a Big Ten school, was a basketball manager. He said he didn't want to use his name, but he gave me way too much more information. And where this goes, I, I don't want to give out too much. Um, worked hard in school and then ended up with a job with a baseball team, a pro baseball team, um, which is... It went from internship to full-time job. Jeez, this is amazing. And he, then he said he met this amazing girl. So, all right, basically graduates from a good Big Ten school, works for one of the teams there, ends up with a pro baseball team, has a full-time job, doesn't have to live in the city of the baseball team. So he moved out to Scottsdale, a.k.a. Hotsdale, Arizona. A lot of people love the Scottsdale stuff from last week because it's all true. It's just unbelievable. Um, it's a very, very attractive city, but I'm just telling you, if uh, somebody's taking pictures in front of a waterfall inside of a master bedroom with a dragon skeleton, it's probably it's probably not her house. All right. All right. Here we go. During COVID, moved in with the girl, started living together, uh, moved to Arizona. Um, girlfriend is a nurse, so she decided to quit her job and come with me. There were a couple times early on in the relationship where it seemed like she had signs of being mentally weak or having low self-esteem. She said that she needed to seek therapy. Okay, no problem there. Obviously, stuff happened. She also mentioned that her last boyfriend was emotionally abusive and cheated on her multiple times, and that's where some of the low self-esteem comes from. For example, she went to Starbucks, and they got her order wrong, and she just walked away with a messed up drink without correcting the Starbucks barista to give her the correct drink, and she ordered and paid for. All right, so uh, two things that I want to stop you at there. We all maybe not all of us have done that, but the messed up drink thing. Um, I remember years ago, you know, when somebody would come over and say, Hey, how's your meal? And I think we all just instinctively say, Oh yeah, it's great. When it isn't a couple of years ago, I decided to start telling people I'd be like, no, this isn't any good. Oh man, It's not going to affect your tip. You're still going to get 20%. You know, as a former service industry person, I always try to tip well, unless you're complete disaster. I mean, you really have to screw up for me to not want to tip you at 20% or higher. Um, but, I started just doing it and I go, Hey, you know what? This is kind of disappointing. And it wasn't like I wanted to send it back. I wasn't trying to get anything off of the bill, but I got sick of actually lying to someone who would say, Hey, how's your food? Cause we all just say, great. So that, that's not too bad. Um, I think that's something that a lot of us do. We just go, Hey, you know what? Let's avoid conflict. I, why am I going to tell the person, but man, if they make your stuff wrong, like that's an actual easier habit to break. The thing that I, I hate about this email and it has nothing to do with the guy or the girl, it's the ex. I don't understand why some of you guys do this. And I've dated girls that have gone through this with ex-boyfriends. The guys that you do this thing, you're so fucking insecure as a guy that you dump all over the girl you're with to almost beat her down mentally so that then she thinks you're this amazing catch and she never wants to leave you. So you're so afraid of losing the girl that you're with. You tell a beautiful girl that she's ugly. You'll say nobody else will ever want to date you if it weren't for me. I mean, it's unbelievable. Some of the girls think, well, you know, look, I'm not married and I'm, I'm in my forties. So I've been around and I don't want to sound like a scumbag. I'm just saying, you know, you, you go through your, your arcs of spending time with different people throughout your life. And it wasn't like I was off the market at 30 years old. It is just, I can't believe the number of people that I've met that would say, oh yeah, you know, my former, whatever he would, he would just go, yeah, you, you're, you're look ugly today. And it was just this, this pattern 
So for those of you, some of you are listening right now and you guys do it. Stop fucking doing that. So uncool. Like, it's just so screwed up. Even Kyle knows that's not cool. Uh, but it happens way more often than, than you think. And, you know, maybe some of you guys that have been married and have been dating for a really long time, you're like, oh, it doesn't, it does. And it's, it's, it's all based in the man's insecurity that he feels like he has to make his partner feel worse about herself. And that's, that's the most disappointing thing. Like, I think one of the things, you know, if I were to delve into, do you ever see when a, when a guy wins an award for, you know, a Grammy or, you know, best screenplay or, you know, Golden Globes, Oscars, all this kind of stuff. You know, the guy will like look over and point to his wife and say, hey, I could have never done it without her. Um, I'm not sure that that's always true. <laughs> you know, like I always kind of <laughs> joke and think, what if you were single and accomplished something? You'd be like, I'd like to thank no one. I did this on my own. <laughs> um, that's that's the right thing to do. It's a nice thing to do. You thank your mom, you thank your wife, you know, that plays really well. But you know what it is? It's, it's maybe that writer, I would sense the writer, or the artist, the musician or whatever, they could have done it by themselves because they're the ones that had the talent and they could have married a bunch of different people, just like women can marry a bunch of different men. And the point is, though, is that even if all of that stuff's bullshit and superficial, it's that when you actually decide to spend a lot of time with somebody else, part of that, I don't want to say contract because it seems impersonal, but Part of that understanding of getting into that relationship is that you're always going to be there when the other person needs you to be there and that you're going to prop them up. And you maybe you're going to tell them things are going to be great when you may think, eh, I'm not sure if this is going to work out. But my role in this is to make sure that you know I'm here and be supportive as much as I possibly can. I'm not saying being supportive every single time for every idea that your spouse or girlfriend has every time that you're together. But to be the opposite of that, to be like, oh, you're a loser. Oh, you're not pretty. Oh, no one else is going to like you. Oh, you're never going to get like, why, why even date anybody? Because if that's what you're doing to people, you're just fucking them up and it ends up, you know, instead of paying it forward, it it's inherited by the next person. Um, as this guy is, is talking about this. So I, I do think some of you guys out there suck. Okay. So, um, this has led to anxiety and, uh, people pleasing for her has got to the point where she has panic attacks. Uh, I guess his parents flew out to Scottsdale and she was really worried she wanted to be perfect. So she was having panic attacks. Okay. Um, as I mentioned before, she said she needs to go to therapist, deal with the things she's going through. We're approaching a year in a relationship and she's still not set up therapy when all the signs point towards, uh, going to therapy with the most beneficial. It's also very irritating when she spends her free time watching the office episodes for the hundredth time. Well, that I can kind of understand. Mm -hmm. uh, and runs from doing productive activities or keeping her word on things she says she will do but never actually gets done. Um, this lie ties into the people pleasing. Okay, so his question is, what should I do in this situation? Do I try my hardest to convince her to find a therapist or I just let it go and ignore it? Am I nitpicking her? I really do think this type of people pleasing, suppressing feelings and growing inner anxiety of her is affecting our relationship and putting a burden on her mental health. Um, this is getting starting to get heavier. All right. I could, uh, and I just mean like my own limitations. I, I, I just, you know, how much do you really want to listen to me? Did you hear what with Willie Cologne earlier? I could be wrong, but if we were to get married and have kids, I think she would go, uh, then go further and teach our kids to suppress their thoughts. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. Again, not a parent. I can understand like, Hey, I don't want my kid to be raised this way. So if she does this, does that mean that, you know, the next person is going to do this? I don't think that's entirely fair. Um, I don't think she's going to go around saying like, hey, make sure you repress every one of your feelings and thoughts because that's what I do as your mother. Um, I think that's projecting a little bit too much. Uh, to me, it seems like if she just put her mind to a hard work, she can grow out of her people-pleasing, suppressing feelings habits, but at the same time, it looks like she does not want to put in the work and would rather suffer. Um, look, the therapy part of this is really tough because like, you're telling her to go. She clearly doesn't want to go. If she wanted to go, she would have gone already. So that's a simple answer. I don't know how hard you can push her on this unless you do kind of the thing we've talked about before approach this in a very serious sit down style in a way that you've never done before instead of just letting it maybe you've already done that so um really is this about 
do you like her and you're coming up with things that you think you're worried about or are you getting to the point where you don't like her and you can't do this? Because we've had a bunch of different people chime in and like if you're just going to sit there and not really confront it, suggest it, let her do her thing, you know, there's a balance of how comfortable are you telling somebody, hey, that you need to change your life or I'm out the door. But I mean, that's kind of what happens. That kind of what happens. But I can't figure out, you have to ask yourself two things. Are you worried about your relationship because of kids that don't exist yet? I think that's a little bit too much. Or are you worried right now, like, hey, I'm I'm growing tired of this current, like judge the relationship based on what it is right now, not about what all the different things that could potentially be down the road. If you're cool with her and you're in love with her and you think all these things are great um, and this is just a part of it, then you got to figure out a way to make it work because it's going to suck. Um, you know, you got to always remind yourself too, if you care about this person a lot, what it's going to be like if you're not with them. Now, if you don't think you care about this person all that much and it's driving you crazy every day in the moment, forget about the kid part of it. Um, you know, this is, this is a tough one. It's, it's, uh, it's really tough to go ahead and, and tell somebody else, Hey, you need to change your life for us. Um, because I'll tell you the track record of that when you're telling the <laughs> other person is, is, is not, you know, most people aren't like, yes, you're right. I am bad totally. at this and I want to change starting tomorrow. I'll get up early and let's, let's get it done. I mean, it's just, most people just don't work that way. So, um, that's a tough one and I don't know if I helped at all. So life advice, rr at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Ryan Russell podcast and the Ringer Podcast Network. And we'll talk to you on Friday. Friday.